Hello everyone, welcome back to the Open Bar Experience, David Dacker, your host. It is March 8th, 2019, that means that it is International Women's Day. Happy International Women's Day. So make sure you uh, let uh, all the ladies around you know how great they are at what they do and uh, at just being part of your life. Now, into this episode because um, the interview that I did today ran for nearly two hours and so I had to cut it down into um, just a, you know about 45 minutes worth of work in order to well, just because that's that's what I'm doing with this with this podcast. But thing is, is one of the things we get into that is not going to be in this episode is mental health, and it is a a, a podcast. It is a, an episode that I'm looking to do in, in the near future, and so I saved what he had to say about that for for that episode. Now on to other news. Before we get into uh, uh, the interview, is um, I'm opening a bar in downtown Houston called Lockwood Station. That is gonna be part of Bravery Chef Hall. Um, that particular, so inside of Bravery Chef Hall, you have these owner operators, and then there's one space that is an incubator bar. That incubator bar is where I'll be, and essentially the, the, the concept of the incubator bar is that it is a space that will turn uh, over uh, about every year and a half or so, and uh, it'll get a new person to go in there with a new bar concept. The idea being that you that gives uh, bartenders the opportunity to to um, to run a bar, operate a bar as an owner, uh, without necessarily having to put the investment in and in to do it. Uh, it gives the Bravery Chef Hall um, uh, fresh concepts uh, and uh, fresh talent. Uh, to go in there and uh, do something interesting, um, but it also to that individual, in this case myself, gives the opportunity to deal with some of the things that you don't see as a manager, but you do have to deal with as an owner, um, in addition to realizing a concept of your own. That is opening up uh, sometime soon. <laughs> You know, as any bar or restaurant opening, uh, there's always setbacks. So hopefully, crossing my fingers, it'll be sometime at the end of this month, um, start or maybe starting next month in April. And so I'll let you know about that. Also, I'll be posting it on um, Lockwood Station uh, Instagram as well as the Facebook. <clears throat> um, on my own uh, Instagram uh, account, which is going to be David Dacry. Uh, or at David underscore Dacry. Um And then the other one is uh, Lockwood Station, uh, STN for station. Uh, that's the way that it is on Facebook as well as on Instagram. Uh, so let's go ahead and get into this week's interview, and um, I'll see you on the other side. So I'm here with uh, someone that, I've known for quite a while and sort of the periphery of what the industry is. Uh, about 2008, I worked at The Grove and uh, 101 Reserve was a fairly new bar. There was construction across the street, what would end up being uh, the House of Blues. Uh, there was empty spaces next door. 
there was not a whole lot going on there. But uh, somehow it hung on to better days and to become a bit of a staple uh, when it comes to Texas uh, whiskey bars. So, uh, Mike Raymond, um, I'm glad that you were able to make it uh, and come by and talk to me about what it's like to be uh, an owner, what it's like to keep your, uh, your head right and uh, stay healthy. Um, I think that's one of the things that we probably don't hear enough in uh, our industry because uh, we throw the parties, and so we're expected to party. So, um, but first, thank you for coming. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, how you got into the industry. How long have you been in the industry? Hey, David, thanks for having me. First off, I'm excited to do this. I, I always enjoy doing podcasts, and so a new one's always exciting for me and uh, bringing back memories of 11 years ago of the, you know, the early days of Reserve and the Grove and House of Blues and everything like that. Uh, so for me, I started in hospitality in 1989, September 1989. So um, we're, we're inching towards 30 years for me. Uh, and I, I started as a weekend gig Fridays and Saturdays. I was working as a server assistant at a white tablecloth Italian restaurant across the street from my house in New Jersey. So... Um, you know, from there, uh, I did that kind of through high school and everything, and then um, moved to Atlanta and went to college in 93 and was waiting tables and bartending and then ultimately uh, managing bars and restaurants. So uh, really where I kind of really cut my teeth was about 97 at a place called Jocks and Jills. They had a chain of about seven locations in Atlanta. Um, and towards the end, I was kind of like the problem solver. So if a location was struggling in the kitchen and the kitchen numbers weren't right, I was the kitchen manager. If the bar wasn't right, then I was the bar manager or I was the assistant general manager or whatever, whatever they needed. You know, some cases the office manager was on maternity leave. So I was the office manager, what, 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 whatever that location needed, um, that's where they would ship me. And I would just go and, you know, again, Atlanta, Atlanta's not as big as Houston, but very similar in style where you have pocket neighborhoods and, and you know, thriving sub suburbia. And I always tell people Atlanta's probably about 10 years ahead of the curve of what Houston is. And most of that's because they had the Olympics in 96. So 96, uh, the whole city was forced to kind of transform, you know, the, so, um, uh, light rail and things like that were better figured out. The roads were a little bit better, better figured out because they had to be, you know. And um, but, you know, I see a lot of similarities in Houston, and, and especially right now with the the growth and 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 just everything that's going on in this city. But yeah, so that's kind of where I got started. I left left Atlanta in the end of '99 and uh, November '99, and then went back to New Jersey, where I'm from originally. And I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do with myself. So either I was going to uh, work in Manhattan, work in New Jersey, go back to Atlanta because uh, I had a pretty cool seasonal job uh, working at Turner Field bartending and doing that stuff. And then my buddy had a restaurant, so I was running the restaurant on the days that there wasn't home games. Um, but I, lo and behold, I had a friend who I had grown up with moved to, was moving to Houston uh because of because of a girl you know the typical story and i was like well you know check the boxes for me i wanted to be somewhere in the south i didn't want to have to deal with snow i wanted it to be a major city because i basically i was moving somewhere without a job so i wanted to be able to 
you know, there was a lot of kind of cool towns that I had visited through the years that, man, I, you know, I could live here. You know, like I always think of like St. Simon Island, Georgia is really cool on the coast. It's about an hour north of, um, of Florida and that kind of thing. So it's kind of right on that Georgia, Florida line on, on, on the coast. And it's just kind of a little barrier island, really cool but there was like five bars you know so you kind of feel like if you did something wrong at one bar you'd probably never get a job again and you'd be like oh i guess i'm kind of screwed uh so you know places like that didn't make sense to me i wanted so i wanted a big city i'm a i'm a, I'm a big city kind of guy i enjoy being city living and stuff like that so uh and again, if I was going back to Atlanta, it would be moving back like in March for the baseball season. So like around this time of the year, getting ready for the baseball season. Uh, he was moving to Houston in July. So I said, you know what? July gives me a little more time to kind of figure things out, whatever, whatever, whatever. So lo and behold, I moved here. Uh, it was right around, I don't know, right around July 5th, July 6th, something like that, 2000. So yeah, so I moved here, sight unseen, uh, never visited, nothing. And no job, so it's pretty crazy. So, you know, again, you know, 2000, July, you know, middle, you know, we're getting rained today, the hottest time of the year of Houston. That, was, that, that yeah. summer was brutal. I mean, brutal. And, you know, again, I've lived in Georgia. I've lived other places. But, I mean, that first summer here was just like, I don't know, we went like 45 days without rain, and it was like 30-some-odd days of triple-digit heat. You know, things now we're like, eh, okay, whatever. But that first summer, I was like, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, um, you know, from that point, you know, trying to, you know, interviewed for a variety of different places and everything else. And at that point, a lot of places wanted me to be a manager and I really didn't want to manage bars. You know, I wanted to be a bartender, or, you know, what nowadays the kids call a beverage director type role, maybe. But I really wanted to be back behind the bar full time, not, you know, in a suit and tie. Right. So. Uh, ended up taking a job at Champs Americana in Uptown Park, which was like right around the corner from where I was living when I first moved here. And um, I got to work there for almost four years, something like that. So there you go. I started in the industry in uh, October 92. Okay. So you got a few years on me. And um, and I remember it was with the the Papas, okay. um, which was, you know, when it came to training, they, they still are great. And back then they were it. It was them and Landry's. So that was it. And so, I mean, how did you go from, like, wanting, how did you end up owning the bar, and then how did that bar become a whiskey bar, and how did the whiskey thing become you doing seminars and teaching? Like, well, what was that progression? That was, that, that was so soon a, after, or like? Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty loaded question. So, um, so for me, I always tell people that, you know, my brain works in a different way. And, and and it's a really strange thing. And, and again, you know, as I'm inching towards 44, I'm kind of now, um, you know, figuring things out better. But for me, the what doesn't matter. Like, I, I don't care whatever that what thing is. It doesn't matter. If I understand the how, then I can wrap my head around it and I can, I can, I can do it. So, um, so for me... Growing up, my uncle was really into home brewing. And I'm talking about like in the 80s, like before it was a cool thing to be a home brewer. He would, he just really got into it. And I was fascinated by it. You know, I mean, we're talking about, you know, preteen, yeah. you know, and um, I was able to he would explain to me, hey, this is how you make beer. And he kind of would, 
walk you through the process. I'd watch them do it and the whole thing. So essentially I got a very good crash course in beer. Um, and then when I was in Atlanta was right at what I, what I kind of called the, um, the, the second craft beer renaissance, so to speak. So we're talking late nineties, mid to late nineties. So things like anchor steam and, and Sierra Nevada were readily available. Fat tire was still a small thing. Uh, I was really fortunate. The, the bar I was managing in midtown Atlanta was the first place to ever put Sweetwater on, on draft. So I got to know the guys at Sweetwater really well. We've had a lot of epic drinking <laughs> times at their, at their original brewery. Uh, they used to joke we were the only people that would bring bottles of liquor to a brewery. Cause was, <laughs> we, we literally one night took uh, all the flowers out of a vase at the front door and used it as a uh, basically as a yari and made giant vats of shots <laughs> uh you know things that i would probably wouldn't do anymore but when i was a younger man uh, you know that that seemed like a really good idea <laughs> yeah so so yeah so early on so i want to say probably right around you know so at that point a i drank a lot of whiskey and drank a lot of craft beer um, you know, to this day, I'm still a big fan of Sweetwater 420. I'm a big fan of Anchor Steam and big fan of Sierra Nevada. Those that style of beers, um, I kind of prefer those over some of the, you know, new stuff. New stuff gets a little too hoppy. Um, with that said, things like Buried Hatchet Stout, I love. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of it being 11% alcohol because you don't taste any alcohol. It's just like candy. <laughs> I remember the first time having I rifled like five or six of those things down sitting and got up. I was like, oh, that was a bad idea. But uh, yeah, exactly. Rodeo Clown's another one that's just a great beer. And you're just like, oh, I'm just going to keep pounding these things. And you stand up, you can go to the bathroom. You're like, ooh, eh, you know, maybe I should call Uber. Uh, but yeah, so um, so I, I, I can still remember this. So I went to, uh, so I was working at, at Champs. It was probably, you know, so we're talking about, you know, tail end of 2000. And um, I got invited to a doer's kind of seminar class. And it was at Mid, what's now Minute Maid. So back then it was still Enron. um and you know so we went i went there and you know and and they i don't even remember who the brand ambassador was because that's how long ago it was but um they were giving a class on 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 doers and blended scotch and i can remember this day sitting there and they're going over this thing and me saying you know writing down on, on my notepad oh just like beer and then and and i once i did that once I was able to say, all right, well, really all whiskey is is distilled beer. I know how they make beer. I know all that. I know how a still works. Oh, you're putting it into a barrel? Okay, I get that too. And, and, and that's kind of where it started. So from there, it became what I call an intellectual curiosity. Why do I like this over that? Why do I drink this, not that? You know, And understanding the nuances of, of whiskey. And again, those early days, you know, you know, hanging out with Fred No. You know, Fred No would come to town. No one, you know, knew or cared. I mean, he would show up. I mean, he would show up in overalls and have um, like a like a little Sprite bottle, you know, plastic bottle that was actually filled with uh, new make uh, Jim Beam. And he would take it on the plane with him. 
Like, I mean, you know, you can talk about how far back we're going here. It's like where you could actually bring your, you didn't have to dump your liquids, yeah. you know, pre, you know, before you go through TSA checkpoints. And he would just, you know, go in and just take little nips and everything. Was, Mike, you want some? Yeah, all right, I'll try. I'm like, what are you doing to me, Fred? So, yeah, so Fred, uh, Fred and I go back a long ways. Um, Richard Patterson has been uh, an incredible mentor to me. Uh, I jokingly refer to him as my whiskey dad, uh, and it was really kind of surreal when he, he and my dad and I all hung out in Vegas one night, you know, for like a weekend, you know, because it's very much like, oh, here's my whiskey dad, here's my real dad, and we're all just kind of hanging out in a in a bar in Vegas. In Vegas. In Vegas. Yeah, yeah. The only other place would be New Orleans. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have not been to New Orleans with Richard yet. Uh, I'll, I'll see what I can do with it. But yeah, so I mean, like Richard's been incredible. Uh, Dr. Bill Lumpson, who was just in town a few weeks ago, is always great. Uh, and that was the first time I got to spend some time with, with, with Billy Lumpson in probably about four years. But he and I email back and forth pretty regularly. Uh, Billy's been, you know, invaluable to me as, as, a, as a resource, uh, along with Fred, along with uh, Jimmy Russell. I mean, Jimmy, Jimmy's like my grandfather. You know, you got, you know, if you put it in hierarchy, Bill Lumpson's like my older brother. Uh, Richard's my dad and, 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 um, Jimmy Russell's my grandfather in whiskey and to be able to have those resources and to be able to reach out to him when I, when I need to, you know, when I have questions, when I, when I want to know more. And, and then what I do is I try to take aspects of whiskey, you know, and how whiskey's made and, and the process from start to finish and really try to do a deep dive you know i spent i've spent probably the last five years focused on maturation just what's going on in the barrel um because it's fascinating to me you know the idea that you could have two barrels filled at the same time sit side by side and taste completely different you know and and when you get into like the guys like 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 billy lumson who is in my opinion the the greatest mind in the business when it comes to maturation like he really knows it like he can look at a tree as it's still in the ground and say yeah that's gonna make some pretty good whiskey or he can taste the wine in the barrel and say yeah i want this barrel not that barrel and it could be the same wine you know (laughs) like you know and he can look at the wood grain he can he can do those things he understands his his mind works in a way that he gets it and he you know and if you really asked him he can give you kind of a very simple answer but uh, you know he I don't think he even knows, you know, I think he just, how do you breathe? Something you know? Unique. Yeah. You know, you, you ever think about how you breathe <laughs> and the next thing you know, he started suffocating cause he stopped breathing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So, um, so those guys have been great. They've been instrumental, uh, along with, uh, the craft guys, you know, I bought into craft whiskey, you know, I don't really like to term craft whiskey cause I don't think they've done a good enough job of defining that idea. Uh, I think as time grows, that's going to get, figured out but and i think it's going to mimic what we see in craft beer you know so you have micro distilling you have craft and then you have the big guys and it's all based on gallons and how much you produce um you know not meaning craft like oh i'm using my hands i'm crafty no i mean craft it has to do with size and scale and a lot of people kind of get that little screwed up but um so like the lorenzo's up at uh Tullton distillery you know uh I, I i met gable Right after William Grant bought the Hudson Whiskey line and 
come to find out that where he grew up, my grandparents had their like had their home where they retired. And at the bottom of the hill where my grandparents' home was, was the high school for that town. So that's where my dad taught me how to drive a car. That's where Gable went to high school. And we met in Houston at reserve, <laughs> you know? So, you know, there, there, there are certain connections that are, you know, just dumb luck. I mean, right place, right time. But Gable and I still talk all the time, and he's awesome. Uh, Garrison Brothers, I've always had a great relationship with those guys. Um, uh, Balconies, those guys are making some incredible juice right now. Those guys are great. They're great resources. Jared uh, up there, their head distiller is, is just one of the coolest guys. Uh, he looks like the missing member of uh, the Black Crows. <laughs> but a super cool guy, and, 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 and I just enjoy spending time with him. Um, you know, Lincoln Henderson. You know, Lincoln was a guy that when Angels Envy first launched, uh, Lincoln's who they sent out into the field. So he it wasn't Wes, you know, it wasn't Kyle. So Lincoln was great. And, you know, I just, man, you know, you know, the guy invented Woodford Reserve. Gentleman Jack, Jack Single Barrel. I mean, you know, early times. All those were things that he did. Like those things didn't exist before he showed up. So you think about that his history and then retires, you know, 40 years as a master distiller. And it's, all right, I'm going to retire. And then his son decides, hey, I think I want to get into whiskey. Okay. You know, you get the, you get, you get the money right, I'll, I'll give you a hand. And lo and behold, Angel's Envy. Um, and then Lincoln died. Man, I'm trying to think now. That's probably about seven years ago now, yeah. six, seven years, something like that. And um, about two, three weeks after Lincoln passed, I went out to San Francisco for a whiskey fest. And it's the first time I met Wes. Wes and I had talked on the phone, but we had never met in person. And he was doing an event. It's funny. The first, the early event was uh, Glimmerangie with uh, David Blackmore, who, who David's the first person to ever do a tasting at Reserve. So, you know, and then the guy who owns Elixir, H, is, uh, grew up two towns over from me in New Jersey. We almost went to the same private high school which is crazy. I always joke that if I went to that high school, I'd never end up where I am today. And lo and behold, there's basically Elixir out in San Francisco, which is very, very similar to Reserve. <laughs> so, and, and we didn't know each other. Like we, we didn't know each other until both of our places were up and going and, and, and everything else. And I think Elixir, I think Elixir just hit 15 years under H. But it's like the third oldest or fifth oldest bar in San Francisco dates back to the 1800s. Yeah. It's crazy. Oh, wow. Yeah. But it's, I mean, I mean, it's very, very similar to reserve. It's funny. I mean, it, it's really eerie. Uh, so, so the early tasting event was, was Glimmer Angie Arbeck. The late one was Angel's Envy and they were doing a whole thing for Lincoln. So I go and Kyle and Wes were there and I introduced myself to Wes. I go, Hey, you know, and, and true story. I said to him, you don't know me, but your daddy and I were really good friends and you and I are going to be friends. So just don't fight it. There's no reason. Just, just, just embrace the fact that you and I are going to be really good friends. And here we are, you know, however many years later, you know, we, we talk, I don't know, at least once a month. But so that was another one. And, and, then, and then Dave Pickerel, you know. Um, Lincoln and Dave's passing are the two things that hit me so hard. I mean, you know, just brutal. Um, you know, Dave was great to me. Um, Dave would always make it a point to come by and see me and spend time with me. And then Dave was at every conference, every event. Every, I mean, he'd be out in Vegas for, for stuff that I'm out for. He's in San Antonio. He's at Tails. He's, at, he's everywhere. I mean, tell me where he's not. And yeah. 
So, you know, I would run into Dave easily 12 times a year. I mean, easily. And we'd always, you know, grab a bite or have a drink or whatever. We would always make it a point to try to see each other. And I didn't see him the last time I was in town. So that really kind of sucked. But, you know, again, you take it for granted. Yeah. You know, you're like, yeah, I always see him. Whatever. So, uh, but those are the guys, you know, um, who really took the time, saw something in me. And, you know, at the very least say, pay it forward, you know, and, and take the time to answer my questions, sit down with me, take an active interest in my life, in my businesses, uh, and everything else. So, um, I try to do the same, you know, I just did a USBG study group for, for whiskey, uh, a week or two ago over at reserve because there, there's a group of Houston USBG members that are going to get spirit certified. Yeah. I think in a couple of weeks, something like that. And, and yeah, exactly. So they asked if, um, if I wanted to, I said, of course. And it's like, like anytime you guys want me to come and talk, you know, about whiskey or going from a bartender to a bar owner. Yeah. I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, whatever, whatever I can do to help, uh, the future generation. Cause I really feel my generation did a really piss poor job. You know, you know, if you start looking at the late nineties to the early two thousands, we did a really horrible job of teaching the people coming in behind us how to do the job. And uh, I think it's caused a, a huge number of issues that we face today in, in, in bar community. You know, um, service, you know, I, at this point, pretty good service is considered standard. You know, I think uh, the work ethic and things like that. And, and again, some of it's just the era we live in. I mean, the, the people that taught me how to bartend and, and run bars, when you screwed up, it got physical. Yeah. It got, it got ugly. It, you know, you get thrown up against a wall, you'd have shit thrown at you. You would yeah. have, I mean, you know, it, 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 it wasn't uh, what you see today where, you know, you raise your voice and someone starts crying. I mean, you would be, <laughs> I mean, I've had bottles whiz past my head and smash against the wall. I've been thrown up against the wall, uh, you know, and that was just the way the industry was. It was a different time. Uh, I'm not saying that it was right, but, you know, I'm here. I'm still alive. So I guess I, I guess it's okay for now or then. So at this point, I ask Mike about uh, owning a bar. You know, what, what should I look for? And, um, you know, he has uh, some very sage uh, advice. Uh, honestly, don't do it. Uh, <laughs> no, you know, it's funny because, and, 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 you know, I say that half jokingly, but there's also another thing to look at. In Houston right now, there's over 10,000 places with a mixed beverage license in the city. That means there's over 10,000 places that a Houstonian can go to get a drink. That's a lot, right? Now, I mean, obviously you have places that are high profile name places, and, and then, but there's a lot of places that, you know, neighborhood places like coming over here in Uber up the street, you know, you have, uh, whatever it was, uh, whatever country club place, uh, Harrisburg country club or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. I've never been there. I never heard of it. Didn't know it existed. I'll tell you what, I'd probably go there though. Cause I'm curious, <laughs> you know, but, um, <clears throat> so there's a, there's a ton of places. And so, you know, Although I don't want to say that it's competition, it's just that you're splitting the dollar so many ways. Um, but, I mean, above all that, because the thing is, is that there's going to be people like myself who was a bartender who wants to then move on to own, owning their own place. 
And that's a very natural progression for people to make. The biggest things that I would say is, first off, is really understand uh, the principles and concepts of a declining budget. And, and I've always had a knack for numbers, you know, and, and the hospitality numbers in, in particular. Uh, I used to be able to just do rattle them off in my head like it was nothing. I mean, I've done it where I've gone into the penny at reserve, <laughs> like without even... It's like, oh, yeah, blah, 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 there you go. And someone would hop on a calculator, and I'd be, like, off by a penny. <laughs> you know, and that's with day-to-day money coming in, money coming out, doing this, doing that, and everything else. I guess I can I could almost name to the penny what, how much was in the bank account. You know, with that, checks on the street, money coming in, whatever else. Uh, those days are long gone. There's, <laughs> you know, because now I'm, I'm, I'm juggling two places and everything else. And, and But the idea of a declining budget is is – Simply put, you project your sales. So, for argument's sake, we're going to say, um, you know, you're going to do 100,000 a month in sales. You're 80% liquor, so you would assume that that means you're going to do 80,000 dollars that month in liquor sales. So, 20% of that 80 of that 80,000 dollars is what you know. So, you're talking about uh, 20,000, right? So, 20 grand is what you have to spend in liquor purchasing for the month. It's that simple, right? So as long as your purchasing is below 20,000 and you do 100,000 in, in sales, you're gonna make money. But you have, to, you have to hit those two things. So to a certain degree, there's an element of discipline and not buying more than you need. Um, and it's also keeping, keeping an eye on sales, you know, and, and keeping an eye on what you're purchasing. Uh, when I was in Atlanta, you know, the, the place that I was managing and I was doing all the troubleshooting, they really took the time and taught me um, the notion of the back of the house kind of financial sides of things. Because that's a lot of times that's what I had to do. And they're like, all right, you know, GM would say, all right, here's our budget for the month. You know, this is what we're projecting sales this is what we're going to do. And then I would literally sit there and I would have a, a whiteboard and I'd fill out the whole whiteboard and say, all right. This is how much we have to spend on linen. This is how much we have to spend on whatever, office supplies, liquor, beer, wine, whatever, whatever, you know, everything. And I would then go to the chef and say, all right, chef, this is what you got for food. This is what you have for labor. This is what you have for all these things. And, and then it would be my job to kind of be the babysitter and say, all right, chef, what are you doing? Why are we, why, why, are your, why is your labor out of line or why is this? you're screwing with my money because all of us wouldn't see a, we wouldn't bonus, Yeah, you know, unless we, we hit numbers. So if someone's, you know, and I was basically, you know, the babysitter and kind of walk in and say, look guys, I need this or I need that or whatever. And, and, um, <clears throat> to this day, you know, the best education I ever got in this business. And, um, so I always want to tell people, understand the back of the house. You know, there's a lot of people that I, that I've, worked with and worked for that never really understood those things, but they had, they had other attributes that maybe I don't have, um, you know, where they're, you know, they play the, the mayor really well where, yeah. and I play the sheriff really well, right? You got to have a mayor and you got to have a sheriff, you know, sometimes you have to wear both hats depending on, you know, if you're, you know, what the situation is, but you need someone to kiss hands and shake babies. As I say, you need someone that's the face that's, um, really great at you know smoozing people easy to like easy to like you know it has to be that super likable person there's a ton of those people in our city and they're really really good at it you know 
And, and, and that's a very, very important thing. Um, but you also need someone that is going to be the person that's going to crack the whip. There's a person, you know, again, it might seem weird, but I don't like to have my face out front. You know what I mean? Like, I, for the longest time, I'd be embarrassed when people would come into reserve. Oh, you the owner? I'm like, hmm, yeah, you know, because I, you know, because I didn't want to deal with it on that kind of level. I would rather talk to people. Hey, welcome, blah 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 blah. But I didn't care. Like, I didn't want, um, you know, to be out front and be, you know, what I now call the hood ornament. You know, yeah. you know, look cute, stand out front. Everyone sees you first, and whatever, whatever, whatever. But um, that's important too, you know. And that's kind of where, when, again, the 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 era we live in now. You know, if you want to be a high profile bar or restaurant, you got to have a PR firm. First thing the PR person is going to say, "Oh, you're a whiskey bar. Okay, who are you? A whiskey expert? Well, you are now." Yeah. Thankfully, in my case, I was. Uh, pretty versed and, and, you know, and everything else. And, you know, we worked with one group that was Houston based for, for a very long time and they were great. And then we kind of, you know, moved up to a national person who, um, it's a whole nother, you know, thing to go through because it's, it's national PR is different than, than regional PR for sure. Yeah. You know, there, there, there's a lot more writing, you know, it used to be, you know, like a Phaedra cook or someone would, would, call me or stop by the bar and be like hey i want to i'm doing an article on xyz can, can you answer some questions can you do this sure no problem whatever and 30 minutes hour later you know kind of like doing this podcast you know a couple questions whatever whatever off you go your day's done now i get you know you know literally i get like 30 questions in an email from esquire and it's like okay you sit there and you write it out and then the article comes out and literally all the writer did was write an opening paragraph and a closing paragraph and the rest was what you wrote. Like, it's not even like they changed the, the verbiage or anything. And I'm like, am I getting paid for this article? But, but it, you know, so then, then, you know, again, you know, in my case, I graduated college in 97. So that's the last time I really did what I would consider significant writing. writing. So, you know, you have to be a really good writer. You have to really be able to articulate what you have to say. You have to, you know, there's a lot of people that want, you know, feel like, hey, I want, I want that national spotlight. I want, I want to be up there with the Bobby Hugels of the world, you know, and, and, and they think it's, it's great. And I'm like, look, man, make sure you know what you're getting yourself into because it's a lot of work. It's a full-time job. I mean, when we switched to uh, Emblem, uh, PR. I mean, Colin worked me over like the first couple months. I was like, will you please stop? But he was so excited because he's just like, oh man, I got reserve 101. He's like, he's like, people are literally like lining up because they, they have different articles and cause whiskey's so hot and they need, they need people to give their opinions on X, Y, Z and this and that. And I mean, he was dropping like 10 articles a week on me. Wow. And I'm like, this is a full-time freaking job. Just this, just this. And that's one bar. Yeah. I'm like, you're killing me. Yeah. But I asked for it, yeah. you know, and I'm actually paying for it. So it's kind of like a kind of like seeing a uh, dominatrix or something. It's like I asked for it. <laughs> but listen, um, do you have any anything else you want to add? No, you know, the biggest thing I want to add is that understand that I'm here. I'm not leaving this city anytime soon. I'm approachable. Um, if anyone ever wants to come and talk, whether it's about whiskey, about bartending, owning bars, managing, um, or just they need to get some stuff off their chest, I'm a pretty easy guy to find. 
uh, email me, Mike at Reserve101.com. I'm six, at minimum six nights a week at Cottonmouth, so come by. If I'm not there, Michael's there. One of us is always around. You know, know that we're, we're here. We're here for the community. We care. We'll feed you some soup, you know. <laughs> throw, throw some shots your way if you need a drink or if you just need to talk. You know, you know I think it's important to know that we, we, we're here to help the community, not – bring it down we're not trying to take from others we're, we're trying to contribute to what's what's already here and great and try to make it better so whatever i can do ever uh at any time just please reach out i'm i'm, I'm available i appreciate you coming by um and having this conversation with me it's uh, i think it, it is very important to hear from you know bar owners people that are are um affecting you know in in establishing the norms in the uh in the industry and i think that reserve 101 is is such a staple that um you know you can't go anywhere without people like knowing of it or uh, having some good times there and and, and whatnot so but uh yeah thank you i appreciate it yeah david thank you so much um you know as i said i you know when we start i love doing these podcasts they're fun they're easy you know um but thanks for doing it, and, and thanks for having me on, and uh, thanks for the kind words. <laughs> so I hope that you enjoyed the uh, interview as much as I, I did doing it. Um, he's someone that goes far back into the industry as, as, as much as, as far as I, I have. And uh, it's in industry. this industry has changed so much in the last uh, 20, 30 years that um, you wouldn't be able to recognize it um, and <laughs> as some of the conversations we had but part of the interview you, you could hear the things were, were pretty intense uh, at some point well a few other things that I wanted to uh, mention was uh, events that I've been to recently uh, went to the uh, Grammys uh, party as well as an Oscar party put together by Ryan O'Harris that was a lot of fun, and uh, I appreciate the invite, and I appreciate the good job that you do putting those events together. Uh, also, uh, Nathan Raphael did um, <clears throat> in, uh, a brunch at uh, JW Marriott right there on Russian, Maine. That was uh, really, really incredibly delicious and uh, a lot of fun. The pastries, I mean, the whole thing was really delicious. But they had these pop tarts dessert that were amazing, and it you may think it's just pop tarts, but no, pastry chef made pop tarts. It was amazing. Um, Andrew uh, Gallagher, Gallagher. Okay, I'm sorry if I'm uh, chopping up this last name, but uh, uh, that's the uh, beverage director, food uh, food and beverage director there. Uh, he's doing a great job. That is uh, one of those uh, really fun and um, well-done hotel bars that uh, I'm a big fan of. So go by and uh, give it a try. It's a beautiful space and uh, nice and open right across from uh, Finn Hall. And like I said, right there in Rusk and Maine. Also, the USBG um, Regional Conference is coming up on March 31st. That is going to be in San Antonio is the southwest uh regional conference that's ours here um like uh mike mentioned there's some people that are going to be doing the uh spirit certification there so good luck to you guys 
um, just do the studying. Also, what else do we have here on the schedule? Um, there's still, uh, this is Sunday at 3 o'clock is whenever the study groups are getting together for that. Um, today is the 8th, which means that on the 21st, um, there's going to be at Cottonmouth at 7 p.m. Old Forester uh, Rye Launch. Just uh, tasted that at the last USBG meeting. That is uh, pretty tasty, and it is a different type of rye. It's got more body to it, uh, not as spicy or as fruity, which is uh, interesting. Um, had it straight. Uh, I look forward to making a cocktail with it and see how the uh, the rye comes out uh, once it's mixed. Um, let's see. Sunday the 24th at 11 a.m. in Herman Park, St. Germain is having a picnic and kite festival. So I'm sure that you can uh, find that out on a Facebook event um, or uh, call Rebecca Buckhart. <clears throat> Hit her up uh, about the details on that. Um, these are all USBG events. So, you know, you can get with uh, Robbie Cook uh, also or Nathan Rafael or... Chaco or uh, Tomas. Um, in Vegas, I don't know, the nightclub and bar convention, if you're into that. Uh, I've never made one of those, but definitely looking uh, to put one on schedule. Not this year, but possibly next year. Uh, Radio Milano with Cypher Gin. It's got an ep- uh, 26th of March. Uh, happy hour from 4 to 7. And then uh, on the 27th of March on Silver Street, oh yeah, Culture Mark, uh, Culture Map is having the uh, Taste uh, Makers Award. Uh, that should be pretty cool. Anytime that uh, gives an opportunity to dress up and look fancy and do some fancy shit before it gets too fucking hot, I'm a big fan of it. So if you uh, have an opportunity to head out to San Antonio on the 31st of March, which is a Sunday, uh, all the way to Wednesday. Go ahead and um, and give it a try. The uh, conference is a great place to uh, network, uh, meet a lot of great people, check out uh, how great Austin, Austin, San Antonio uh, is, um, and the great work that the uh, the industry is doing over there. Very hospitable, a lot of high quality cocktails. Just a really, really cool, um, cool scene that they have over there. So, aside from that, please, please, please uh, check out openbar.space. That's my, my website. Um, also, leave a review on uh, Apple Podcasts. I am on Stitcher as well as TuneIn, Alexa, Overcast, and uh, like I mentioned before, the coming up, I have. Uh, Another podcast uh, on strictly on education that is going to be five minutes or less. So this is just you get sort of uh, anyone who is interested up to par into very, very general terms. You know, what's the difference between I mean, starting with fermentation and, and, and distillation. I think that's the, the simplest thing that a lot of times bartenders don't understand. But I'll, a few things that I always hear is, you know. You ask for bourbon and, you know, or, or whiskey and and someone will say, well, the only whiskey I have is Johnny Walker Black <laughs> or something like that. 
and you see you know all the bourbon and rye behind them and they don't know the difference so that's uh, intended to to clarify that and also so that bartenders start putting their fucking vermouth in the fridge and not keeping it longer than they should that's the intent so remember take care of yourself take care of each other and keep the conversation going